Lord, even as we go on to see your prayer life, uh, we ask that this prayer might be bathed in all that you have done for us, that we come to remember, come to consider, and we come to stand in awe of every Christmas season as we look at the story of the birth of Jesus Christ and the longing of Advent. And so, Jesus, even as we pray right now, we thank you for what you are actively doing in heaven before the Father, what the Spirit is doing actively in us, and what the Father delights to enjoy relationally with those who come through the Son in the Spirit in prayer. May uh, the word that you have given us today um, seek to accomplish the fruit that you have purposed for it. Give me clarity of words. Give us clear ears to listen and hearts quick to apply and repent. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we began our Advent series last Sunday, and the Advent series this year, titled Gospel in Our Bones, is looking at the humble reality of Jesus' birth. If you grew up in the church, you maybe had stories of Jesus, uh, kind of the no room at the inn thing, and, and, and the scandal is like, well, you know, here's the king of the world, and he has to be born in a manger. Scandalous as that was, the bigger scandal is not that Jesus was born in a manger, It's that Jesus was born at all, that God would become man. And the church has long called this incarnation, that the son of God taking on flesh in Jesus Christ, him becoming man. They've called it by this title, a divine condescension. It's when God condescends to us. Now, for our modern ears and our modern minds, that might catch us off guard. It might actually be kind of provoking for us because to be condescending in our modern language and experiences to be kind of a jerk. If you look at Merriam-Webster's dictionary today, the primary and first definition listed for condescension is this, a patronizing attitude or behavior. When someone speaks to us in a condescending way to you, we assume that they are taking their position of knowledge, of authority, of power, of position, and they're kind of leveraging that to make us feel small or foolish stupid. Uh, With my four kids, I often, in my weakness, in my flesh, speak to them in an overly condescending tone. And I found that nothing quite crushes their spirits like me repeating things slowly in a way that makes them feel stupid. Maybe at work or in a relationship, you've had a boss give you something to do, and you ask a clarifying question, and he's obviously frustrated because he gave you what he thought was the clearest uh, and most uh, helpful definition already, and he looks at you and he says, do you understand me? He's condescending, but the goal is to what? To make us feel silly. It's to belittle us. It's to put us down. It's taking kind of this, it's weaponizing that gap between the position of power, the position of authority, and the person who actually needs service, and it's turning that against them in a way that is harmful We are talked down to by one today who condescends in order to be put down. But that's not what we mean when we talk about Jesus' condescension. In fact, if you look back at Webster's original dictionary in 1828, like we all do, right? Uh, You would find that the primary way that this word was used, the first definition back then of condescension was this. Voluntary descent from rank or claims of dignity. Relinquishments of strict rights submission to inferiors in granting requests or performing acts which strict justice 
does not require, hence, courtesy. In the incarnation, in the divine condescension, Jesus comes down to us voluntarily. Jesus does, in fact, speak down to us by merely taking on a human body and speaking to us in human language, as God did in the Old Testament in his word. He is talking down. It is baby talk, so to speak. But Jesus' condescension does not belittle us. In fact, the scandal of the incarnation is that in Jesus' condescension, he himself is belittled. He becomes small in his humanity as a courtesy to serve those who he desires to save. He didn't weaponize his rank in coming down to us, but instead he shows the quality of his true rank and the character of the triune God by serving us and bearing the cost of that service in himself. And this model of condescending authority is seen in its ultimate in Jesus, but it's actually something that Jesus impresses upon any Christian disciple. Jesus says this to his disciples in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 26. He says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says he has come to serve and to give his life as a ransom, but he also gives the quality of that service. It's redemptive. Look at how Jesus says this in Luke 19, which we've looked at in our study of Luke that we'll resume in January. He says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' mission on earth was condescending service of those he came to serve. And the quality of that service is not mere physical service. It's not mere moral service. It's not mere economic service. It is redemptive service. He was saving people from sin. He came to seek and save sinners by ransoming them by the blood of his cross. And this is why the passage Cameron just read for us today in Mark is of importance for us today. Because notice what's going on in this passage as we pick up in Mark 1 verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And today we're going to be talking about Jesus's prayer life. You might say that's probably the worst sermon we could ever give because he's Jesus. Of course he prayed. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? But prayer, as we see, is part of his condescending service to seek and to save his lost, or to seek and save the lost. If Jesus were to humble himself and seek us, which is what we just saw him doing in Luke and in Matthew, here Luke portrays that part of that humble service of seeking us was the humble service of Jesus to also seek the Father in prayer. This is Mark's portrait of messianic purpose. Jesus has come to preach the gospel. And that is why he's going. He hasn't come to merely heal. 
He hasn't come to merely be, merely be displayed. He has come to preach good news. And central to that good news is Jesus seeking the Father. This is not an accessory to Jesus' mission. This is not an aside from Jesus' mission. This is essential to Jesus' mission. The good news of what Jesus does to save sinners and restore us to God is tied up in the good news of Jesus' prayer life. And what we're discovered today is this. This is our main point. Is that a praying Jesus reminds us of what was always his and what by grace is now ours. A praying Jesus reminds us of what was always his and what by grace is now ours. As we look at this text in Mark and some other texts in the gospel, we're going to see three things about Jesus' prayer life. We're going to see that a praying Jesus reveals an infinite distance, a reliant representative, and a relational restoration. An infinite distance, reliant representative, and a relational restoration. And so first, let's examine the infinite distance, our first point today, the distance that Jesus' prayer life reveals. You see, the fact that Jesus had to pray was in itself a jarring experience. We talked about this last week of how jarring it would have been merely for the eternal God to take on flesh in Jesus Christ. And it was even more jarring to know what that experience would be like in contrast of what he left behind, what things used to be like for Jesus as the eternal son of God in glory. I consider myself to be a fairly adaptable individual. Some of you might think otherwise, uh, knowing my foibles, But there's one thing that despite my self-assured adaptiveness uh, that I always struggle with. And that is when my wife moves around a drawer in our kitchen, I will never emotionally recover. I will never learn it. My parents remodeled a kitchen when I was in high school. And until they moved into their new house, I still could not find where anything was. I would go to the wrong place constantly. This week, it didn't even mean for this to happen. I myself willingly, volitionally, in a wonderful, bright idea, rearranged our whole kitchen. And I have yet to wake up and go to the right drawer or go to the right cabinet. One of them is just completely empty right now. That's how effective my organization is. I cleared out an entire cabinet that's free. And I open it and I stand like shocked, like we've been robbed in the morning. (laughs) And I'm frustrated, not because those items are no longer there. I know they're there, but they're not where they used to be. And this is a really trivial example of what Jesus' prayer life indicates on a cosmic level. You see, in eternity, he would have been eternally, endlessly, present, immediately, with the Father and with the Spirit. But the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 in regards to Jesus' incarnation. And he says this, he says, But we see him, that is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So what is he saying there about Jesus? Well, angels being spirit, being just messengers created by God, are free to kind of come and go. If you read the Old Testament, come and go from heaven and on earth freely. But Jesus, for the first time in eternity, was bound by his humanity. He was in one place at one time for as long as his mission to seek and save the lost required. In eternity, he existed in direct and immediate fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, but for a little while, that immediacy and that proximity was stretched. Do you realize that in eternity, the Son never needed to pray? He simply spoke. He was present. There was no gap 
between the Trinity itself. But in human form, he had to pray. The author of Hebrews goes on to say it this way in Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Jesus' prayer life was unique. And what we see in Hebrews 5 is it was distressing in a way during the days of his flesh. Why? Because the drawers were moved. He always had immediate, intimate access. But now, it wasn't where it used to be. It was always there. But there was a greater effort, a greater intention needed to communicate. It's not that Jesus was any less God. It's not that the Son was any less connected to the Father or filled with the Spirit in heaven. There was never a moment where Jesus was not intimately or actively the Son of God. But when he took on flesh, the geographic distance of the Trinity was strained. There was not only a relational intimacy but there was now uh, that was strained, but a geographic one. When he took on flesh, he was still relationally the Son of God, but he became that at a distance. And look back at the grammar of Mark 35 and notice the distance of prayer. He rose while it was early. He departed while it was dark. He went to a desolate place. And then finally, what did he do? Finally, he prayed. <laughs> he is laboring these verbs of action with qualifiers of kind of things that are hard. He rose, but it was early. He departed, but it was dark. He went, but it was a desolate place. And there he prayed. Why did he do this? Because the distance from one end of the kitchen was infinite compared to what it used to be. The Puritan Thomas Watson said that in praise, we act like angels. But in prayer, we act like men. Jesus' prayer life was part of his condescension to not only be human, but to identify with humanity. He acted like a man and he prayed to the Father because his humanity put him at a distance from the immediate nearness of glory. Every time Jesus prayed in scripture, every time you see that, it was a reminder of the lengths through which Jesus went to constantly find another drawer to constantly realize what was once there and now is here. And this is important for us to understand when we look at Jesus's prayer life because for any of us, this would have been more than frustrating. I was frustrated this week, but that was just to find my coffee. But for someone who has such an affection for the object being removed, that frustration could quickly turn into devastation. We often view the Trinity as just some academic piece of theology that floats out there, maybe a tool or some sort of divine accountant that we have to reconcile ourselves with one day. But Jesus shows us what Scripture attests to, that the Trinity, that God himself is the center of joy. To be removed from it by space was to have this constant ache of what is most lovely, most beautiful, most joyful in all existence. The God who created all, and it stands at a distance. If you ever read love letters between two people, you've seen this kind of ache. The French emperor Napoleon Bonaparte was a man of great passion for his beloved. He wrote countless letters to his future wife, Josephine, while they were separated on the battlefield. And those letters, they 
they ache with this deep, dripping pain of distance. In 1814, he wrote, men, take notes. Sleep consoles me, places me by your side. I clasp you in my arms, but on waking, alas, I find myself 300 leagues from you. One night, he fell asleep, staring at her portrait, and he rose to write her the next morning. Your portrait has left my senses in turmoil. My soul aches with sorrow. Ah, it was last night that I fully realized how false an image of you your portrait gives. Now, what does he mean, a false image? It's not just, well, this isn't HD, right? This isn't Instagram worthy. That's a false image. What he's actually saying is he's saying it provides a false perception of the true reality. It doesn't mean the portrait is itself false, but it does communicate that it's not fully true. For us, who have never met Josephine, I don't think. Some of you are old. I don't think you're that old. For us, that portrait would be the fullness of truth. We know her in no other way. But for Napoleon, who was present with her, who experienced her, who held her, who loved her, who had an intimate relationship with her, that image was just a flat representation of what he was separated from. Have you ever looked at a portrait of a friend who has moved or a loved one who is maybe stationed overseas in the military or held a wedding ring of a spouse who is past? You feel the nearness, but what you also feel is the pain of what is at a distance. Jesus, as the Son of God, was never relationally separated from the Trinity, but his prayer life showed the necessary ache of gazing at the Father through the Spirit at a great distance. Always a portrait, never full presence. Always there, but never in full. What's interesting is of the four Gospels, no one talks about Jesus' prayer life more than John when he wrote the Gospel. And what's interesting, additionally, is to notice how many times John uses the verb to pray. You want to know how many times he does it? Zero. Because anytime John talks about Jesus praying, he doesn't indicate, and then he prayed. What he instead chooses to say is, and then he lifted up his eyes. Prayer for Jesus was a constant reminder of what was always at a distance, of what he once knew in full, but now on account of his purpose to seek and save the lost, he willingly condescended to experience in a unique way. Even though it wasn't a full separation, what it does indicate is that the center of his soul and of his affection was no longer at eye level. He had to look up. He had to see every time the distance that stood between where he was and where he currently sat. He had to relate to the Trinity in a uniquely human way. And so in this way, prayer for us is a restoration of what we never knew we lost. But prayer for Jesus was a constant reminder of what the incarnation cost. It cost him a distance, a deep, deep distance. 
but he did this willingly for us. Jesus spanned the infinite distance between God and man to save sinners. But friends, the distance we have between God and us is, if it were possible, infinitely more. Because Jesus came and lived a sinless life, which means Jesus in the flesh took on only the distance of what God created. That's humanity. But us in our sin, we also took on the distance of what God hated. That is sinful depravity. Jesus was separated merely by space. He was human and he was not fully, or he was fully God, but he wasn't fully present with God uh, on his own. Now he had these dual natures of divinity and humanity, but we are separated from God, not merely by our humanity, but also by our sin. Our separation is not only geographic, it is also moral. It's not merely relational, it is ethical. There's a burden and a boundary that keeps us from that. And so if Jesus, merely because of his humanity, being perfect, sought the Father, how much more do we, who have fallen into a greater chasm, have an obligation to seek God earnestly? But the problem is that we do not. We cannot see our need, and we do not seek God. And this is our second point this morning. This is where a praying Jesus shows us a reliant representative. If you look back at our text in Mark, you'll notice how easy it was for Jesus to get away from these disciples. No one followed. There's no spies. Peter's not yelling out like, hey, wait for me. No one was willing to go to these costs that Jesus went. Everyone was sound asleep. They weren't going to bear that cost. Jesus just went. And this reveals that we need Jesus to pray Because at the core of humanity, sin is merely a failure to pray. He's praying in this scene when no one else is. And this was in many ways the sin of our first parents in the garden. Now you might say, because you ask good questions, what does eating fruit in the garden with Adam and Eve have anything to do with prayer? That's a good question. But to understand that, we need to understand the nature of what prayer is. Prayer at its core is an appeal to God's transcendent power, in God's imminent presence. Kids in here, when you pray, we pray because of two things. Because God is bigger than us and because that big God wants to be near to us. That's why we pray. Because God is great and does what we cannot. But that great God has in his mercy desired to be near to us. He is present and concerned with us. And so when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they didn't appeal to God's power to solve the problem. They forgot that this God had created everything they needed. They had no want, no lack. What's the repetition in the created order? It was good, 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 it was very good. Why? Because the God who made it is infinitely good in his power. They didn't fight back, citing God's power. They didn't fight back by running relationally To God. Kids, when you get scared at night and you run to your parents' room, you realize that even though you're in your room, you're in your parents' house. And you always know where they are. Adam and Eve in the garden. Even though it appeared God was not there, they were in God's garden. And if they ran, they would find him. They would find his presence. But they didn't 
run. Even though God walked with them daily in the garden, they assumed he would always be at a distance. And this is why the serpent came to them when God was seemingly absent. And what does he say in this? He says, see, he's not always close. He's not always going to be there. He's not always going to be present. And then what else does he tempt them with? Well, he tempts them with the ability and the power of God. He says, well, you can be just as powerful as he is. He's not that special. Eat this and you will be just as powerful as God. You see, it's not Adam's relationship to the fruit which was tested. It was Adam's relational reliance upon God which was tested in the garden. And they failed. They refused to live in a reliant community with the God who was always present and powerful. All they had to do was cry. All they had to do was run. And God, like a good father, would have taken a hoe to the head of the serpent. God didn't fail in Eden. They failed. They didn't run to him. They didn't cry out to him. And on account of that, the powerful present God who desired to bless and live in constant communion with them now took the stand against them. It was on behalf of his power and behalf of his radiant holy presence that he now removed them from the garden because of their sin. And yet in a mercy, he doesn't immediately kill them physically so that they might cry out, they might come back, and they might find a way back into the garden to walk with God again. And so you think that's what they do. They're out of the garden, they cry out, they come back. They're out of the garden, and you know where the first occurrence of someone crying out to God is? After Eden, the blood of Abel, after his brother in sin killed him. Those who were human... (laughs) Those who are alive didn't cry out, but those who realize death did. It wasn't until God's people were enslaved in Egypt, captive, oppressed, left for dead, that the entire nation finally cried out to God. And you know what God did? He answered them. He heard their cries. He delivered them. They did it. They're back. They will always rely on God. Narrator, They did not. The rest of the story of Israel shows as soon as God is faithful, Israel is faithless. They do not rely. Finally, King Solomon, the one, the king of peace, not the king of war, he builds this temple. The presence of God comes into this temple. He is in the midst of the people. We're finally there. And Solomon prays this prayer in 1 Kings 8, a deeply prophetic prayer. And in this prayer, he assumes that Israel is going to do what Israel does. They're not going to cry out. They're not going to be faithful. And so in light of that, he asks God that if Israel prayed and turned towards the presence of the temple, God, would you hear in heaven and listen and act? He gives eight hypotheticals in 1 Kings 8. And the summary is this. He says, if your people are alone, if your people are sinful, if your people are in trouble, if people who aren't even your people, if the nations seek you, if they cry out to you, then hear in heaven and act. Hear in heaven and forgive. Hear in heaven and defend their cause. In other words, Solomon's prayer was merely asking God to be God. God had already promised early in Israel's history in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, when you guys do dumb things, 
cry out to me. Turn to me. Run to me. And if you would seek me, I will be found and I will act. Look at how the psalmist talks about this in Psalm 81, verses 4 through 10. And listen to the relationship of God's people crying to God and how God acts. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out of the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved, so this is God talking, I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress, you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret places of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the mouth or brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide. Speak up. Cry out. And I will fill it. God is faithful. Always, always faithful to those who cry out. Just open your mouths, people. Pray to me. Do you remember me? Do you see what I've done? Have I ever been unfaithful? I will set you free from your sins and I will bring you new morning mercies every single day. But the problem of Israel's history is the problem of our history. Our problem is not that God does not answer prayer. Our problem is that we do not pray. As Paul quotes, in Isaiah, or Paul quotes Isaiah in Romans 3, he says, no one seeks for God. We do not cry out for salvation. We do not seek him. We do not ask. We ask Siri. We ask Reddit. We ask our, which I just found out that tool. That's great. Uh, we, we ask our senators we ask our human saviors to help us, but we on our own do not seek help where it is. We do not seek God. That is the whole story of the Old Testament. And so what does God do? He seeks us. He sends Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who willingly, for the love of the father and the love of the lost, takes on human flesh to be the man who always seeks God. To be the not dummy who realizes all we have to do is open our mouths and God will fill it. He came as a true man. He came with all the issues of reliance, of humanity that we have. He needed to rely on God to give him food. You realize that the grocery stores just store your food, right? I know we need to say this, it sounds dumb. Grocery stores don't make food. People don't make food, well, maybe. Uh, but God, through rains and through grass and grains and meats, God makes food. We are reliant upon God for our food. And Jesus, in his humanity, was faithfully reliant upon God, asking even according to his own humanity that God would care for him. But despite all of this, he never lost sight of his need for constant communion with God. If anyone would have had a past to not pray, don't you think it would be the one who is himself God? 
don't you think it would be the eternal son of God? Wouldn't it be Jesus? If anyone were to be self-sufficient and say, I got this, couldn't it be him? Isn't that exactly what we saw last week Satan appealed to Jesus for? Take these stones and turn them into bread. You don't need to be human, you're God. But he subjected himself to all of this. Why? For us. Do you realize that of all the people and all the prayers we read in the New Testament, we find no one who prays more than Jesus. Not in all the narratives of Acts, not in all the travels of Paul, no one prays more than the God who became flesh. Jesus did all this work to pray, not because he simply needed it, though in his humanity he did, but he did it because we needed it. He was subjected to the human weakness of prayer because we were too weak to to pray. He prayed not only for us, he prayed as us, as our new faithful Adam. He relied fully and sinlessly because we never could. He offered up prayers in the days of his flesh, early in the morning, while it was still dark, alone and in desolate places with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. All the things Adam should have done, he did it because we needed to be saved from death. Death in sin, which put us forever at a distance. And Jesus surrendered himself not only to our distance in his humanity, but to our death on the cross. Jesus lifted up his eyes constantly so that when Solomon lifted up his eyes in 1 Kings 8, that his prayer could actually have merit so that we know it could be answered. Only in Jesus can we with confidence cry out to God and say, here in heaven and forgive. Here in heaven and maintain our cause. Have you ever wondered that? Crying out. I know there are people in here because you've talked to me. Why isn't God listening? Why isn't he answering? Why does he seem so far away? Why is he not helping here? But God will hear. Do you know why? In times where it seems God has not answered you, do you know why and where God has answered Notice the prophetic prayer of Solomon again in 1 Kings 8, 32. Listen to what he says. So he's praying to God. Then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we can pray that prayer because the heart of that prayer was poured out on Jesus. What we have asked for, the wages of our sin is death. We are condemned in our guilt. Your prayer has been answered. You are guilty. But Jesus has come to live with perfect righteousness so that our guilt can be poured out on him. So that the righteous, who are the ones who have hope that God would hear, would have hope not according to their righteousness, but according to the righteousness of Jesus. 
He sought and saved us by seeking God faithfully on our behalf so that we could share in the benefit of the righteous who always have an audience before God. Jesus has not yet won us back to the garden. That day comes when he returns. But on the cross, he has won us back to walking with God even in the desert. He has brought us back and God will hear us because of Christ. And this is our last point today and it's a profound point of application. And that is that in Jesus's prayer life, we see a relational restoration. Everything Solomon just prayed for in 1 Kings 8, demanded righteous atonement. Jesus did that on the cross. Guess what? You haven't prayed enough. Jesus did for you. Guess what? Prayer was only part of the problem. Jesus paid for it all. That's why this is good news. We come to Jesus. He pays it all. We're declared innocent because Jesus has taken our guilt. But let's not forget that what Jesus came to do was not merely to get us back into the garden by removing our sin, but to restore us back to the God of the garden. That was the fundamental problem. That was the fundamental relationship lost. And do you remember what the disciples said in Mark when they found Jesus? In verse 37, everyone is looking for you. They sought him. They looked for him. They finally found him. They're like, yo, what are you doing? The, the people, all these people you've been healing, they're, they're looking for you. They want to see you. And you know, these people wanted to see Jesus because they saw him as this miracle worker who would heal them. But Jesus' prayer life shows us something more. Why can everyone seek Jesus? Why should everyone seek Jesus? Because Jesus sought the Father. It's his relationship with the Father that then says, come and seek him. Here's everything you're looking for. Here's the good news of the man who has a perfect relationship, even in his flesh, with the God who is perfect. Jesus came and faithfully relied on the Father so we can be restored in the same way back to the Father. As Adam and his self-sufficiency brought death and distance, Jesus in his faithful obedience bridged the gap and he brings us back into the garden, but he brings us back better He brings us back on better ground. You see, Jesus was constantly in his prayers calling God my father. He never prayed except when he told his disciples. He said, this is how you should pray. Pray our father in heaven. Otherwise, it was my father. It was father. The significance is lost on us, right? That Jesus, the son of God, would call God his father. Seems natural. But it's actually the scandal of this that John tells us is why the Jews wanted to put him to death. No man should ever assume that God is his father. But one ancient Near Eastern scholar noted the scandal when he said this. He said, today, nobody has produced one single instance in Palestinian Judaism where God is addressed as my father by an individual person. Nowhere in the literature of the prayers of ancient Judaism is this invocation of God as Abba, that is father, to be found, neither in liturgical nor in informal prayers. Why? because no man could call God his father. But here is Jesus, who is the perfect son, who did it. What Jesus had with the father, this relational intimacy with the son, is what made his act of prayer worth it. Do you see what he did, right? Look back at Mark 135. Look at the length. Got rose, got up, went out, desolate, and then he prayed. Why did he seek it at such great lengths? Because he knew the value of it. 
He knew the worth of it. Many of you get up early to go hunting, to begin baking, to watch some stupid soccer game halfway across the globe. Repent. No, <laughs> that's fine. You can watch soccer. Um, why do we do those things? We do those things because it was worth it. Jesus sought the Father through the Spirit early and often in drastic ways because it was worth it. He knew the warmth. He knew the wonder. He knew the intimacy. An intimacy so scandalous that the pain of the cross was nothing compared to relating and relying on the Father. Well, it's already scandalous that Jesus had to pray in order to enjoy his unique relationship with the Father. It's even more scandalous to realize that on account of his mission to seek and save the lost, he looks at those who created the distance. He looked at those who demanded death. He dies in their place. He bridges that gap. And you know what he does? He invites us in to what was always his. He invites us back into something better. Listen to how Jesus prays for you if you're a believer. John 17 We're going to pick up in verse 20 where we see this. I do not ask for these only, Jesus praying here, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundations of the world. Jesus is not inviting us back to the garden. He's inviting us further back to glory. He's inviting us, and do you see the effect that the world might know? Dear church, our relationship to prayer is a tool for evangelism because it displays what we are one to. We are one back to God through the Son and filled with the Spirit. He gives us a plus one for all eternity into the Father's pleasure. Jesus, you'll notice, doesn't have to convince the Father to listen. How many of us think that? Like, oh, I hope Jesus can, is a, in a good argumentative mood today because I've been bad. <laughs> Jesus does not convince God to hear. Jesus does not convince the Father to love. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus lived to make intercession daily before God, but that is because Jesus is the intercession of God. <laughs> Jesus is not your hope that God would listen. Jesus is the proof that he has. Jesus is not your hope that you would be accepted. Jesus is the proof that you are. Jesus is not a wish that God would love you. He is in fact the seal that he does. So we come and we cry out. John Calvin says this. He says, to relieve us at once from fear and shame with which all must feel oppressed. The father has given us his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to be our advocate and mediator that under his guidance we may approach securely. That's the good news of a high priest. There's no other name because there's no other access. Here we go securely. He's proof that relational restoration is possible. 
He validates the pain of your life. It's hard, it's painful. Your sin is deep. Your wounds are, 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 are laid bare because sin is real. You can't get it back. Life is hard because sin is deadly. But here, come to me, cry out to me, take my righteousness and God will hear you. Prayer is really the work of the incarnation. It is not a static act, it is a dynamic one. It stands daily on the past, present, and current work of Jesus. God in the incarnation took on the created humanity so that by the work of Christ on the cross, humanity could take on communion with God. The theologian P.T. Forsyth said it this way, prayer, as it is spoken, follows the principle of the incarnation only with the descending movement reversed. God became man and his son's outgoing, that's the incarnation, that man might be restored to the divine. And prayer is the train of the son's return to the father. Prayer is where Jesus takes us back with him. It is the true response and tribute and trophy to Christ's humiliation. Man rises to be a co-worker with God in the highest sense. That is condescension. Condescension where Christ is humiliated by taking what was yours so that we might be exalted based on what was his. Therefore, we pray. We cry out. Martin Luther once said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Jesus' prayer life reveals that we have storehouses of intimate relationship available to us just as Jesus himself had in the flesh. Because Jesus, as a man, sought the Father through the Spirit, so too can we. Jesus knew the weight of humanity. He knew his daily need. He knew your spiritual need. He knew the cost, but he knew the reward. Prayer is not the burden of the Christian life. It's the benefit of it. It's the blessing. Why would we neglect it? And sometimes the best prayer is, make my prayers not stink. (laughs) Jesus stunk for you. Cry out. You want to see a miracle? You want to see the curse reversed? Cry out to the Father in the Spirit, in the name of the Son. You want to see a miracle? Pray. You want to receive a miracle? Pray. You want to live every day in light of that miracle? Pray. Lame men are healed to walk. Blind men receive sight to see. Dead men are granted life to live. And Christians are saved to commune with God in the power of prayer through Jesus Christ, our servant. What a staggering reality. Christ is both savior and servant so that we can come to the Father. When we pray, we stand on the work of the incarnation. When we pray, we're enjoying the work of the spirit. When we pray, we're communing with the Father who desires that we bring to him all of our needs, all of our weakness, and all of our sins. Because of the son, we know he will always hear us when we approach securely in him even when we come torn and tattered. Because of our sin, Jesus took on the distance that he never had to so that we can now enjoy what was always his. So let's pray. I'm gonna pray right now. And we're gonna pray in a moment. Cameron's gonna come up with these in a confession of prayer. Realize that though these words are dead on a screen, they're alive in Christ. If you wonder what the first step of coming to Christ is, it is crying out for him. 
That's what this confession is meant to do. Cameron, I'm sorry if I'm taking your points. If you're a Christian, what ought we to daily do? Cry out and commune with God. May our community groups, may our dining room tables, may our crises, may our celebrations be wet with prayer because Christ has won us to God. Let's pray. Lord, prayer is no transition. It is representative of a divine transformation. That Christ, in a way, took on flesh so that he would have to yell. That he would have to cry out so that those who had no hope of being heard might cry out and know that they are heard. Heavenly Father, we ask that you um, make us a prayerful church, not because we just want to pray, but because we want the God who is behind the prayer. Jesus himself says that that, uh, apart from God, we can do nothing. So Lord, cause us to abide in you by abiding in Christ, by the power of the abiding spirit, so that we might constantly abide in constant communication to you. We text our friends, we ask our spouses, we plead with police officers, may we do all the same and more to you, knowing what Christ has won us to. We pray all this in your name.